Welcome to Drop Everything Podcast number 27. I'm your host, Dan Holzman, or as Aaron Stevens calls me, Dan the Man Holzman. Of course, she called me that after I christened myself Dan the Man Holzman, but why quibble over small details? Hey, we have a great guest for this podcast. I'm really, really proud of this one. It's with Natalie Enterline. Now, she's a fantastic performer in her own right, an amazing baton twirler and hat juggler, but she was also the partner on stage and off of the great Francis Brunn for nearly 25 years. And I think it's really important that we preserve the history of juggling and the name Francis Brunn should be known by every juggler everywhere. So listen to this podcast, but also look him up and watch one of the most amazing jugglers in history, Francis Brunn. Before we get to the podcast, let's thank our sponsors. First of all, of course, there's the IJA. Without the IJA, this would not be possible. IJA, it stands for International Jugglers Association. Information about this great group of jugglers can be found at juggle.org. And also, don't forget to join me, Dan the Man Holzman, in El Paso, Texas, for their yearly IJA Juggling Festival. Also, my own personal coaching website, braindrizzles.com. Interested in performing? Interested in comedy? Interested in learning about more about how you can get better at juggling and comedy? Then contact me through braindrizzles.com for my coaching services. Okay, enough with the sponsors, enough with me rambling. Let's get on to our podcast with the great Natalie Enterline. Welcome to the Drop Everything Podcast, Natalie Enterline. Thank you so much for doing the podcast, Natalie. How are you today? I'm fine, and I'd like to thank you for asking me to be a part of Drop Everything. Well, you were suggested by Michael Chirik. Yes. Uh, who we was on an earlier podcast, and he is a showbiz guy, and I love talking to Michael. I love talking to anybody who's in show business, and especially uh, juggling show business, and anybody who's had a wonderful career like yourself in both show business and your association with juggling and with the, the great juggler Francis Brunn. And when I watch you perform, and I suggest all my listeners check out your YouTube videos, like every movement is infused with class and sort of knowledge of what it's like to be on stage. So I'd like to start with how you got beginning in your, your training, because you started very young. You started dance training at age three. Can you tell me a little about, about your upbringing, what your parents did? Yes. Well, first of all, thank you for that very nice compliment. Thank you. Um, I started exactly. Um, nothing to do with show business in the beginning. I started very young. My parents have a ballet company and several dance studios. So my sister and I started at a very young age. We actually, we grew up in the studio. So we'd go to school and then our parents would pick us up and we'd go right to the studio and we had dancing and through my father, baton twirling. So your father was a baton twirler himself? Yes. Yes, he was. He, when he was very young, he had polio. And so the doctors had said he should try to do any type of movement that he could to get back on his feet. So he was doing a little bit of juggling, baton twirling. He started dancing. He started roping, anything he could do to move the body. And what age did you start the baton twirling? Oh, I don't really remember. I know they didn't want me to start that early, but my sister is two years older than I am, and whatever she did, I wanted to do. So when she started, I'm like, I have to do this too. So they gave me this really, really long baton that was probably longer than I was. But um, yeah, I just started. And what was baton twirling like back then? Were the, was it a very popular activity? Yes. Yes, it was. In fact, in this area, because I now moved back to Pennsylvania, where I grew up, they used to, you know, every school would have the band and majorettes, and that isn't happening right now as much as it was, at least not here. Well, I know at one time that people would even get scholarships to go to college as baton twirlers, sort of majorettes. Right, right. But now you don't see much baton twirling. Yeah, no, it's changed. It has changed. But I'm not really, you know, in this anymore, so I can't give you an exact answer to that. No, but I remember, like, even uh, an early... Like the early 1980s, we had a baton twirler who came to the IGA festivals. Right. Her name was Jeanette Groom, mm -hmm. okay. and she was the three baton champion. Mm -hmm. So when you did baton twirling, was it single baton or did you do double baton? Oh, I did a lot of different things. I mean, of course, the main thing is with one baton, but I also at points had routines with two, and I did a little bit with three. 
And they also have hoop batons. They have flag batons. My sister and I did a duet together. We did teams. I mean, my, my father had quite a big studio at this time with twirling. And then, so did you continue your dance training along with the baton? And what kind of dance training did you take? You know what? For anything you do, for anything you do, the ballet background and foundation is so important. And even if you never go on to dance, this discipline is with you, I feel, in everything you do. So this is, for me, really the backbone. Well, that's what I'm saying. When I see your, see your work, it's mm -hmm. every move has importance. Every move seems to have meaning. Right. So I think, yes, this is from my background in dance. And then through my meeting with Francis, I mean, he was so strong in this way. And from being together with him for so long and practicing and working together, I just, it all became a part of me, and I'm very thankful for that. Now, what was your sort of baton uh, practice like? Because I see that you won, actually, the world championship in uh, 19, remember, remember, we're not yeah, going to say the exact year, but it was a, a while back. Was right. it something you would train many hours a day, or, or what is baton training like? Oh, yes. Well, everybody's different. I mean, it depends who you are and what your work ethic is. I mean, I think I was a little bit crazy. I used to just, I was nonstop nonstop. My parents had to tell me stop instead of you have to practice. Well, is that how someone gets good at anything? It's more the passion ignites the practice as opposed to you, I have to practice. If you have to practice, maybe you're not in the right. If somebody has to tell you to practice, then I think you should look for something else to do. Exactly. If someone says, well, I need a reward or why am I actually even practicing? If not, mm -hmm. enjoy sort of enjoying the journey along the way. If your heart isn't in it, well, maybe the path you're on is not the right path. Right. I agree. I agree. The thing about baton twirling also I realize is that like when a baton twirler spins, like when they do their pirouettes, yes, they seem to be so much more fluid and they're able to do so many more multiple pirouettes. What exactly is sort of that technique? And is it, would you say it's different than a, a juggling technique? Well, first of all, with the baton, you can, you know, you can throw it higher. When I was competing, I mean, I used to do five, six, even seven spins, throwing it up, catching it, spinning and catching it. At that time, I was a lot younger. I wore sneakers. I wasn't in heels. It was a whole different, it was, uh, I would call it more a sport. They've tried to make it a sport, but it never got that far. But then later on, when I met Francis and I started to, we started to put this act together, then it went a completely different direction. And I actually wanted to get away from that majorette symbol and try to find a, a different direction. Yeah, because your style became more, I would say, uh, dance-oriented. Exactly, exactly. But all that background went into it. Now, it seems like you sort of have a, I don't know much about dance, but I, see, to me, I, the name sort of Bob Fosse oh. comes to mind. Is that someone who influenced you? Yes, big, big fan, Francis, too, of Bob Fosse, because he was really a minimalist with detail. Just little, little tiny movements were so important. Yeah, and he loved hats, and he was just fantastic. Well, so I wonder about the baton in that the baton, if you've ever picked one up and played with it, it's a very hard object. No, I've gotten hit in the head many times with it. And did you have any problems with your hands with, with that much practice? No, my hands at that point, actually my hands would get very sweaty, which they don't anymore, and I had to use like rosin. No, I, I'm probably now, if you do it long enough, you get arthritis in your fingers and everything. Back then, I had no problems. Yeah, I find I, t I tend to get some bruising like if with the harder objects, like with the clubs. I th well, with the hoops, I know Francis, too, when he was doing the hoops, 8, 9, 10 hoops, I mean, he always had these tremendous calluses on his hands, and this was just from, right, the prop and the way you hold it, and it's coming down, and repetitive repetition over and over and over and over and over. And back then, he, he I have to go to Francis now, excuse me. Sure, no, of course. He, um, you know, when he started with the hoops and was setting the records at that time very young, which he then geared away from, he had very quite heavy wooden hoops, not the lighter hoops that they have today. And a lot of, and he did them from the wrist, not from the arms. So the tempo was very fast and quite low. He could do it in quite a low ceiling. Yeah, and that's the reason I never did, uh, I guess we would call them rings. So he would refer to them as hoops? Well, yes, rings, hoops. Well, I'm saying it's, uh, <laughs> it's just a different way of referring to the same prop. I find that they hit the webbing between your thumb and forefinger, mm -hmm. and for mm -hmm. me it was quite painful. Mm -hmm. And I never built up the calluses like you said to actually make it doable for me. So I never, 
was very big on that style. A lot of people don't know is that when he was a, a younger juggler, he was more interested in sort of setting records and doing high numbers. Well, in the very beginning when he started, he, yes, he was in the Guinness Book of Records. He did, was the first to do nine hoops and then the 10 hoops in 1947. But then he, he quickly geared away from that because it took away from the rest of his work, his big thing. He loved to work with one ball. And for Francis, it wasn't, you know, they said to him, like, what, what is your, your hardest trick? And quoting him, he said, there was only one trick. It was one movement from the beginning to the end. It didn't interest me to do a trick. It must fit in the rhythm and the line. And it was little details. These were what were important for him and what he worked on. And when, with one ball, he had much more freedom of movement with his body. The ball was really, for me, it wasn't a prop for him. It was a part of him. He always had this line, like you're inside the ball. I want to read you something, another quote that I have here I wanted to read to you. Please. Because I've put together things that Francis has said during the years. And he just said, I'm quoting this now, any juggler can bounce a ball on the head, but without moving, that is suddenly a completely other thing. To do something where the body is still, it doesn't move. The ball, you have complete control like you're inside the ball. This is what he was working on. I also heard about uh, Francis's act that he thought that it was sort of a complete act from beginning to end. Right. The idea of, of, of having people applaud at certain points was not what really he was going for. It was more of an overall complete package. Right. Well, he also, yeah, they, people would say, what is your hardest trick? I mean, I also, this is a quote from him. He, he said there was only one trick. It was one movement from the beginning to the end, and it had to fit in the rhythm, the line. Yeah, where most jugglers, it's like they, they have their different applause points at the end of each routine. For him, it was complete flow. He said his goal would have been, like in the ballet, to get through the whole thing, and people would be so astounded that they would forget to clap. That's a very interesting perspective, because most people, like I say, they don't see it as one complete flow from beginning to end. Mm -hmm. And if they weren't getting the applause at every particular, they do the poses particularly to get applause. Right. So the idea of having them basically silent and in the rapture the whole time, and only at the very end showing their appreciation would be sort of a very unique kind of perspective. Mm -hmm. I now, one story I heard about Francis Brunn is that he had a dog. <laughs> and that the dog was backstage. Yes, he was at the Olympia in Paris when this happened. Because it's so different than what I would have done. And the idea was that at one point, uh, he had the, the tennis ball on his foot. Yes. And the dog got loose and ran out on stage. Right. Grabbed the ball and ran off stage. And the audience just fell out. They just mm -hmm. went dying mm -hmm. laughing. And if that had happened to me, I'd be like, okay, every show, let the dog loose. Mm-hmm. But for him, that wasn't what he no, was going yes. For. He was like, oh, no, I, you know, no, this wasn't what the act was about. No. <laughs> no, no. He was certainly, uh, had a particular vision of what juggling was right. meant well, to be. Right. Well, when he did the Jack Benny special back in 1961, which is a classic, they asked him to stay on the show as a character in the show. And he felt really insulted at that time because he was like, everything was just juggling that they would ask him to do this. But then later on down the road, he's like, well, maybe if I would have done that, I would have, <laughs> it would have been a whole different thing. But no, it was just pure juggling. So let's go back to the beginning, though, of your relationship with Francis. You met him in 1980. What were you doing at that time? And under what circumstances did you meet? Okay. In 1980, I was dancing in a, in a show in Montreal, Canada at the Queen Elizabeth Hotel in the Sal Bonaventure room. This is all gone now. And um, Francis came in, a friend of his was the producer of the show, and Francis came in as, as one of the acts. And that's initially how we met. And in that show, there was a number called The March, and besides dancing, they made a small section for me where I was doing baton twirling, one, two, and three batons. So Francis and I would practice We'd be practicing and like we would warm up in the kitchen because it was a dinner room and they were serving dinner during the show. So we were warming up between the pots and the pans. And that's how it started. And he could see, of course, I was a spinner. I, I just am a natural spinner. I always was spinning. I don't know why. So when he saw that I could spin, he was thinking for me to do something with juggling. I got like three hats chapeau claps and then three like three balls and three cigar boxes because he thought with the spins the cigar boxes would be something for me 
But I have to tell you, it was awful, awful, mm. not a juggler. And so that never happened. But what came out of this then later on is Francis was working, we were back in New York then, he was working at the Chateau Madrid and I really wasn't doing anything, just practicing and out of boredom. I took one of the hats that I'd completely smashed from practicing and trying to be a juggler. And I took my baton, which I grew up with. So this was a part of me. And I just started doing some things with the hat and the baton. And then when we were practicing, he came and we practiced the one day I showed him and I said, what do you think? And he was like, you know what? It has possibilities. And that's how it started. And what was your awareness of juggling like before you met Francis? Was he somebody you knew about? I met Francis, I have to be honest, I did not know who he was. I had no idea. I had no um, no history with uh, circus or show business, variety, anything. So I really didn't know who he was. And when you watched him for the first time, when you saw his act, <laughs> like, what went through your mind? What did you think about what he was doing? Yeah, well, it's astounding. It's amazing. Amazing. I don't know. When I met him, he said he didn't like baton twirlers. And I was like, well, I don't really like jugglers. <laughs> so we had a good start. <laughs> well, he didn't like baton twirlers because what, of their style, sort of that marchy? Yeah, I think it was just this. Yeah. No, but he did. I mean, he, I don't know. He, we started then after I, with the hat and the baton. And it took me three years, actually. We, we worked and we put this act together. Yeah, it, I started the first time. He was doing a season with the Big Apple Circus in 1983. He did the summer season, and I was just in the Sharavari. I was assisting him then. Paul Binder wanted me to do something in the Sharavari as a majorette, and I said, oh, Paul, you know, I'm putting this act together. We're trying to get away from this image. So he's like, okay, what would you want to do? So Francis and I looked at each other, and then all of a sudden we're like, Chaplin, because we both love Chaplin. I mean, this man was a genius. They made me a costume and I did the Sharavari as Chaplin and then the three clowns. Later at Lincoln Center, I started was the first time I did this act with the Big Apple Circus at Lincoln Center in 1983. And then the clowns would chase me around at the end of the Sharavari. I'd run to the center of the ring and they would rip off the costume and then I would go into my act. So that's actually, I had my act, but the chaplain came through this, this situation. And the Shadavari, that's, that's basically the procession around the ring. Right, in the beginning of the show. And up till then, so you were both fans of Chaplin. Yes. And um, so the idea of transitioning from the little tramp into the baton twirling. Right, it was really accidental. We just were like, I didn't want to do this majorette image. And so we just, boom, we're like Chaplin. And just, it's funny how you don't look for things, they find you. And it's really been great because it sets up my work. You don't expect it. You see me start. And um, especially when I worked at the Lido, you follow all these beautiful, wonderful girls. How can I compete with that? But when the curtain closed and I came out and I'm standing there scratching my butt, it's such a contrast. And then to go into the ripoff and I'm all there in red, it just, it worked. It was a, it's a strong moment. And then when you first met Francis, what was his practice like? Was he someone that would basically be juggling all day long or did he have a particular regime and a particular time? He, well, he would get up in the morning and have a really good breakfast and he always had to read the paper. He had to know what was going on in the world. And then, yes, he would go every day at least uh, like a good two-hour practice with show or without show, always. I mean, very rarely did we ever miss a day of practice. This was food for him. I mean, he lived for this. When there was um, a show, well, after the practice in the afternoon, he'd have like a light lunch, soup or something, and then take a nap. And then if the show was at 8 o'clock, I'd say a good 90 minutes before the show, he would go down and do like a 40-minute like a practice. And then he would stretch. He always would stretch at the end of his practice, whereas I would always stretch at the beginning. So it's, you know, everybody's different. It's what works for you. And then when he was working after the stretching, he would go, he would put makeup on, get ready, relax a bit. You know, he was very quiet. Me, I warm up until I go on stage, but he had the makeup on, he would wash the balls, of course, put makeup on. And then short before the show, he'd do another quick warm up, but he couldn't have any of the balls like bounce on his head because he had makeup on. He wore like a pancake. Mm -hmm. And um, the last thing he would do before he went on stage is he would bite into a lemon. Everybody always asked him why. And it was just for his breathing to clear his throat that it wasn't dry and pick up the Spanish hat and out he would go. Interesting. So he felt that 
the lemon, the sourness somehow opened up his breathing? Always, yes. I mean, since he was, yes. Almost the very beginning, I think he always had a lemon. And did he do any other kind of physical training? Was he someone who would do weightlifting? No, no. His, his practice and what he did in that was plenty. No, he never, no. And what point did he develop sort of the more flamenco style? Was he doing that back in 1980 when you first saw him? Yes, he was already. Actually, he started the flamenco style. He was working at this point. Lottie had gotten married and started her solo career in 1951. They separated from working. And then he was working with Mary Tommen, who was who's an actress, and she was in the Ringling Show at that time. And Mary is still wonderful and coaching, and God bless her, she's amazing. But she's the one who said there's a flamenco dancer at the Broadway Theater in New York. This was 1955, and Francis went, and he had a seat, I think, in the balcony. And by the time it got to intermission, he had a ticket down in the orchestra. And I think he went every night for like, I don't know, a couple of weeks. He went to see every show. He was just so influenced with this style of dance and the music. And he went, he said from one day to the next, he had this really crazy opening with the sticks and everything and moving and everything going. And he completely took it out. And he started, at that point, he didn't have the Spanish hat yet, but he started with his back to the audience with one hoop up in the air, which became like a trademark line for him then. And he left all that, all of that out from one day to the next. And then he really incorporated this feeling, this line, this movement in his work. Now, who inspired him early, though? Was he more inspired? Now, he'd seen Rastelli, is that correct? No, he never saw Rastelli. I mean, okay. no, no, no. Francis's background was his father was a diver. I mean, they were completely private. They had nothing to do with show business. And his father was a diver and he taught both Francis and Lottie. They were in the water a lot and diving as, as kids. And I think this is where also Francis got this line and this, the feet always to be pointed and extended. The arms was from this beginning training in, in diving. And then he was actually going, he was on the, the youth squad for the Olympic German team. And they were in Berlin. He was in Berlin with his father and they saw a show in English. It's called Humans, Animals and Sensations. And when he saw this show, boom, that was it. He's like, this is what I want to do. And he said to his dad, I want to be an artist. And his father at first tried to said no, because they had no idea about this type of work. I mean, they were completely private, but Francis, that was it. He wanted to be an artist. And he went to like an artist school outside of Berlin in 1939, where he learned a little bit of everything, tumbling and this and that which he already had that background from the diving. And he did learn juggling, but it wasn't really then that he had this in his mind to juggle. And then he went back, the war started, the second war, and he went back to Rustdorf by Darmstadt, where they were living. They were no longer in a Schaffenberg. And he showed Lottie what he'd learned. And the two of them, they just started putting together this act. And they really had no teacher but their father had a very good eye and a feel for things and like made their props and they started. This is how it started. And did he ever mention any jugglers that he had seen that were his inspiration? I mean, later on, were there people he liked? He saw many jugglers, but as far as he said, he, he was never inspired by juggling. He was always inspired by, by dance, by movement, more, more this. And through the years, he had people that he met and was working with. He would ask them for help with moves and stuff, but never jugglers. They were always like dancers. And when he practiced, would he use like a full length mirror? Would he, he, cause he would go to his studio, I imagine, not just like practice in his backyard. When we got our loft in New York, this was heaven. I mean, we had a huge loft and we put mirrors in. And that's interesting you say that because when he would practice, he would face towards the mirror. But you have to be careful because when you face towards the mirror and you're always watching yourself, it's not really the right line. Mm -hmm. But you check things. This is normal. I mean, this is what every dancer does. But then when he would run the act through at the end, he would always face away from the mirror. He wouldn't face the mirror. And some days he just wouldn't look at the mirror at all. He wanted to more feel it in his body as opposed to yes. be able to look at it. Exactly. Exactly. You live in New York with, with Francis. Yes. And what was sort of the social scene? Because I knew he had some sort of celebrity friends or people in other areas of show business, uh, like the dancer Gregory Hines. Yes. Well, it's interesting when I met Francis, we used to, I mean, he, 
when he lived in New Jersey, he loved New York City. He would always drive in and practice at the different studios there. And he worked a lot in New York at that time at the Latin Quarter, Roseland. He worked at the Palace with Judy Garden and Liberace. It was a different time. And there were all the hotels, they had club dates and shows. I mean, it, it must have been wonderful. So we would drive down to 1 Hudson Street to practice, and we'd always go along the West Side Highway. And he would be driving, so he was driving. I would always see this building that had high ceilings. And I'm like, oh, there's this building with high ceilings. It would be great to practice. And then in 1991, when his son Raphael came to stay with us, we're like, we can't be living and moving out of suitcases. We need a place to stay. So we started to look for a place in New York. Was We knew it would be in New York. And we ended up in this building on West 11th Street, this building that I had seen back in 1980. And it was wonderful. It was a huge loft space. In this building was Gregory Hines. Well, we didn't really know it when they first showed it to us, the broker, but we were sitting outside one day with Michael Motion at the White Horse. And we see somebody coming up the street, Hudson Street, and Francis was like, could that be Gregory? And then um, we knew then because we'd seen the mailboxes when we went out, we saw Gregory Hines. I mean, he hadn't seen Gregory in years. They worked together with Judy when it was Hines, Hines and dad. But mm. This is quite a while. And so as he got closer, Francis said, Gregory. And he kind of kept going by. And then Francis said again, Gregory. And he stopped and he looked. And then he went, Francis? <laughs> After so many years. Right. So it was like this most incredible. I love stories like this. I mean, this is show business. You work with somebody, then you don't see them for decades. But it's then you see again, it's like you were just together. I mean, this is wonderful. They spoke and Francis was like, listen, you know, I'm going to, I'm trying. We just found a place and it's in your building. You have to help us. <laughs> it was a co-op. And he's like, don't worry. My wife's on the board. Yeah, it, that's life. I had a nice experience with Gregory Hines. Uh, I only met him once, but oh, he's great. We, we were opening uh, for Billy Crystal, and they had just done that the movie. I think it was called Running Scared, where he, they played police officers. Right. And we would do the opening act, and then there'd be a, an intermission, and then you know Billy Crystal would do his hour-long uh, headline set. And so we finish our act, and there's a 25-minute intermission. There's a knock on the door, and open up the door, and and there's Gregory Hines yeah. standing there. <laughs> And first of all, the thing that really it struck me was how well built he was. He was a tap dancer. Oh no, he, he had was a very because uh, he was just wearing like a, like a like a, a sleeveless type of t-shirt. He had like those sort of those greyhound muscles, like that really lean. He was a wonderful person, so nice. And he was very nice because he said, "I really liked what you guys did. Just wanted to come back and tell you." Nice. And we're yeah, you're like you didn't have to do that. Yeah, no, he was really. We we went to Atlantic City to see him once perform, and we went back after the show to say hello. And there were all these tap dancers there with their shoes for him to sign. So Francis took off his Cuban heel, his boot. Okay. And we're waiting in line. And, you know, Gregory's signing. He's signing the shoes. So he's not really, like, looking up. Right, right. And all of a sudden, he has his, like, this street shoe, this boot in his hand. <laughs> he's looking at it like, what? And then he looked up and he saw Francis. And, yeah, it was, it was a very funny moment. Well, that's the thing. When people talk about great jugglers, to me, like a great juggler, it means a certain thing. It means not only are they obviously technically proficient and have a great degree of skill, but they have a great career, that they're, they're actively in show business. Mm -hmm. And because to me, the ability to perform under the lights, to be on stage and to deliver juggling in an entertaining way to the people in that environment is really what makes a juggler truly great. Was that something that he sort of understood his place in the history of juggling? Did he know... Because he wasn't someone who went to the IJ conventions, but did he know the standing other jugglers felt about him? I don't know. Francis always said, you're only as good as your last show. It was always something new for him every day. Of course, he knew who he was, what he had done, but, you know, he was always moving forward and always had new challenges and was always looking to grow and learn new things. It, that it was just, he was just really down-to-earth great man, great sense of humor, and he had a passion for everything he did. He loved boxing, so did Gregory. They would go crazy talking boxing together. Interesting. I don't know. He just, he had a class, Dan. This isn't something you can learn. You can learn tricks and moves and stuff, but this is something that's inside, and it, it's just, it all came together. For me with Francis, it was just all came together.
We had a, a presence. Like certain jugglers have a presence. Like Chris Cremo in his way has a presence. Right. Uh, Paul Ponce has, has a presence. Yeah, and you don't you don't even have to do anything. You you just doing nothing, standing there. Somebody's there. You feel them. It's dynamic. It's you know. Well, I think the same thing about your work. I really do. Just when you come out on stage, when you have the hat, there's such a... You can really see the influence that Francis had on you. I don't know. You know what? Thank you. That is the greatest thing you could you could say to me because this means the world to me. I mean, thank you. Well, I watched the, your performance where you won the, the gold clown in uh, in <laughs> the uh, festival okay. Mondial de Cirque de Demain. Yes. But what really struck me is, once again how well you use the music, how you interpret the music. I think that's from my dance background, I think, I'm, I'm sure. Like right now, I've been using, um, I used for a long time, I think at that festival, I used Far From Over with yes. the Big Circus. Yeah. Then I found some music from Spandau Ballet, which was called Gold, but I took the singing out. It was just instrumental, and I used that for a long, long time. And then Francis had always said that he would love to see me work with Sinatra, but I wasn't, I wasn't quite ready with it. And it took a long time. And finally, in 2001, when we did Incognito the first time, I just couldn't hear this bump, 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 Spandau Ballet anymore. And it was like, you know, it's now, you change now after the flamenco gypsies and the great, crazy music. It's like now for my act, I ch it's time to change. So we got a Sinatra CD. I didn't know what I wanted to use. He went, Carl Heinz was with us, Carl Heinz Seden. Sure. And so Carl Heinz and Francis went for a coffee. And they gave me some time, and I'm like, okay, I'll see what I can find. So I don't know what music I had. I picked, and I was trying to make it fit, and they came back, and I showed them, and I'm like, well, we'll have to cut the music, edit it, whatever. And the last song on the CD was My Way, mm -hmm. and we loved this song. I mean, Francis opened for Sinatra in the sands, and, and so it just had special meaning. And so for fun, I put it on, and I, I did it, and we looked at each other, and we're like, that's it. And then it became a whole different kind of work. It became, yeah, and I'm still trying to fine-tune it now. I'm getting closer. It really is what Francis said, less is more, and it's not what you do, it's how you do it. And then speaking of music, his son, Raphael, he's a flamenco guitar player, is that correct? He is, and when he started, well, when he was young, he loved heavy metal. So um, he came to visit us, stay with us at the Tiger Palace, and he had the guitar, and he was like, yeah, da, 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 da. <laughs> and Francis at that time was just starting to work the act, the whole act through with the live guitars, and El Rubio, who was from Germany. And so Rafa was there, and somehow between shows one night, Rafa asked El Rubio Reiner to show him the guitar, and that was it. He was like, to this day, he just fell in love with the flamenco guitar, and Francis was always worried that he would never find something in life that he loved because Francis felt this was so important. Whatever you do, it could be anything, but to love it and to enjoy doing it. And Raphael just, you know, and he started to practice and Francis thought, well, by the time he's able to play, I'm not juggling anymore. But this didn't happen. Raphael was able was able to play with him for the last couple of years that Francis performed. So this was really special. I think that's around the time I saw uh, Francis. I saw him in the Lido. You were his assistant. You also were performing mm -hmm. your act in the show. Yes. But, but my understanding was he, at that point, was recovering from hip surgery. Yes, yes. Well, he'd had an osteotomy back in 1976. Uh, the hip replacement at that time wasn't as improved as it would become. And so he found an incredible doctor in Paris. And through this osteotomy, he couldn't actually even walk on his leg for one year, he couldn't put weight on it till the bone grew back together. But during that time, he learned new tricks sitting and he swam a lot. Exactly 10 years later in 1986, when we were at the Lido, he had the hip replacement, same doctor. By that time, it had improved so much that he was able to continue juggling and performing, which he did till the end of his life. He stopped performing. He was like 73, 74 years old when he stopped performing on stage, but he practiced until the end, always. He, he was adding new things. I remember he, at that point, I think had sort of a double ball spin. He did the three ball in the last trick, yes. Yeah, so he was, even towards the very end, was always trying to just keep pushing it forward. Yes, exactly. Now, it also interests me that the story of him and his half-brother, Ernest Montego. Yes. My understanding, once again, is that 
Ernest Montego didn't know that Francis Brunn was his brother or half-brother. In the beginning, no. Francis and Lottie in 1943, they, they made a, a film. They were in a film in Germany called Tonelli. They had a small part. It was a, a movie about an artist and everything. So you saw them working. And Montego, as a, a young boy, went to see this movie. And when he went home, he told his mother, not knowing who he'd seen, this is what I want to do. This is a crazy story, but it's true. Yeah. And the first time, actually, they met, Francis didn't know he had a brother. I'm not quite sure when Montego knew Francis was his brother. But Francis was working at the Sahara in, Lake, or in Las Vegas with George Burns. And this was, I think, 1961. I'm not quite sure, 61 or 63. Anyhow, Francis had done his afternoon practice. He was in the dressing room, and there was a knock at the dressing room door. And there stood Montego, and he said, Hello, I'm Ernst Montego, your half-brother. And I think Francis was like speechless or (laughs) I not want to repeat, but no. And then he said to him, because Ernie had at that point, he wore very thick glasses because he had bad eyesight. He said, take off your glasses. And he saw his father because Montego Ernie looks um, more like Papa than than Francis did. Francis looked more like his mother. So he he took off his glasses and Francis could see his father. So Francis actually set up the first meeting. He called his father in New York and said, Papa, your son is here. And he set up a meeting for Montego to meet his father when he went to New York. Did Francis know he had a half-brother or was that something? Oh. No, his father never... They didn't know, no. Interesting. And the fact that he had actually become a juggler. Yes. And through this film, Tonelli. Later on, I mean, they met several times in different places. And then I met Ernst in um, Paris because we were getting ready to open at the Lido and he was at the Moulin Rouge. And then later in the late 80s, 90s, when the Tigger Palace variety opened in Frankfurt, um, we were there a lot. Montego was in the first show. We were in the first Christmas show. And Aschaffenburg is like, I don't know, 30 kilometer from Frankfurt, 40 kilometer. So we, through the years, the 90s, we got to spend much more time with him and his wife, Lorena, and it was really, had a nice relationship together. Now, uh, Montego was very famous for his version of the Brun finish. Right. Where he would do it on the, on the tall unicycle. Mm-hmm. Was this something that, that Francis, was this something he was doing before, or was this something that Francis suggested, or how did that come about? I, this, I don't quite know. You'll have to ask Montego that. Mm-hmm. But it's interesting because Francis, yes, um, whoever gave it the name, the Brun finish. Yes. Once again, Francis said it's not the trick. He said it's how you set it up and take it down that's important. Now, as his assistant, it was very important for him to have the props delivered quite rapidly. Yes. <laughs> was this something that required a lot of? Was he very particular about? Where it was thrown, how it was thrown. Well, of course, yes, there's precision in this. I mean, if the, the, the hoop or something, the ball goes a little bit off, that, yes. that disrupts the whole, the whole rhythm. I, the first show I did with him in 1980, we went to the Concord up in the Catskills in New York. And I didn't, I didn't really know the act that well. We had just actually really met. And um, it starts, he did the opening with the hat, and then the six hoops came in. And well, they flew in. I don't know if they exactly flew to Francis, but they flew in and that was the start. Now, he all had another trick that I'm not sure if he knew it was called, but it was called the impossible trick. Oh. At least that's a name it's known by now, mm-hmm. where he would spin a ball on his finger. He'd mm-hmm. have another ball on his neck. He'd stand up straight. Right. right. The ball would drop behind him. He'd kick it with his heel mm-hmm. from over his shoulder and then catch it spinning on the ball that was spinning on his finger. Yeah. Well, the ball didn't really actually go over the shoulder. I mean, it went straight. It went, went like right up, straight over. Straight over his head. Yeah. Now, did he call that the impossible trick, or is that something other jugglers have adopted? Yeah, no, no, no. He didn't call it the impossible <laughs> trick for him. It was normal. I mean, he just had a feel for this. One thing that he did that I've never really seen anybody do is the tennis ball. I'm sure you've seen that, where he has it on the head, and then he, it goes down to the foot. He kicks it from the foot behind and back and I mean first of all he throws it clear up to the ceiling catching it on the head stops it and then rebounces it back up I mean it's it's just a normal regular tennis ball for some reason the word flicking comes to mind like like very it's a very sort of sharp movements he's making mm-hmm. to control the ball and it's just a regular ungimmick tennis ball right and tennis ball yeah and they they don't have a lot of weight. It's very hard to control such a light object like this. And balls are very 
anyhow, they're subject when you go from maybe backstage to onstage, if the temperature change is, is different, they get bigger, smaller, harder, softer. So it's a, really a challenge. And they don't make, well, when he started, they had rubber balls, but then later it was hard to find rubber balls and good balanced rubber balls. Right. That's even hard today. It's hard to find a good spinning ball. It's true. It's true. And so what kind of balls? Did, did he have a special person make them or was there a... Well, actually through the Johnny Carson show. He was on the Johnny Carson show and they were talking about this. And there was actually not far from where I live. This is very funny. In Lebanon, Pennsylvania, there was a ball company. And through this, they had seen this interview with Carson and they called and they, Francis made, they made a connection with Francis and he went there and they actually made a special mold for him. And they made, they made balls for him. And one time Francis said, the balls have changed. They're not the same. And they're like, and Mr. Ballman was like, no, no, no. We will make them like always. And then he called Francis back about a week later. And he said, you know what? You're right. We have a different guy cutting the rubber. And he doesn't cut it quite the same way. I mean, Francis was so fine-tuned on the problem. Well, when you spin a ball and you really sort of, sort of understand the principles of it, yeah, I mean, you definitely can feel the balance of it. You can feel whether it's lighter or heavier or, right. or slicker. He had also a specific weight for the balls, and he would, you know, when they were too, too heavy, he had to sand them down. And this is a very sensitive thing to do. It's not right. easy to make one little move, and it's off balance, or you break the ball. I mean, Lottie's husband, Ted, did this. Francis did it, and also then Raphael was able to do this. To sand them down. Sand them down to make them a lighter weight. Now, would Francis do anything uh, with his hands as far as use powder or rosin? Because like you were talking before, when your hands get slippery, it's very difficult to get the right sort of whipping motion. No, he, nope, nope, he never did anything like that. No. Nope. You never, never used any kind of powder? No, it would get on the balls. No. Sometimes when, when that, later when the vinyl balls and they came out and it wasn't rubber anymore, sometimes they would get dirty and a bit slippery. I mean, he washed them after every practice, after every show but he would use a little bit acetone to clean them off. So make sure they were just very clean, had kind of a sort of a tacky. Right, they didn't get like this film on them or anything, but he loved taking care of the props and keeping them clean. And Yeah, we met him backstage. This was before the, the, the show. My partner, uh, he, he for my birthday, he sent away and asked Francis to, set, to sign a picture for me. So in my house, very proudly displayed, I have a, a picture oh, of him. No, 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 Francis was really cool. Oh no no we were we were in awe and just the the fact that we were in his presence was was really uh, very special to us. You mentioned Michael Motion. Were they were they good friends? Yeah, him and Francis. Yeah, he was. Yeah, good friends with Michael. And what do you think about Michael's work? Did he? Uh, he liked that... Michael because Michael was always very creative and looking for his own thing. So he liked people who had their their own their own image of what junk. What if someone had sort of copied his style? Was there anybody he looked at and said, like, that person was... No, I mean, they copy is a copy is a copy, but it's not that person, you know, even, yeah, it's... When you when you make something and it's you, it's, it's you. So there's different ways of looking at it. I mean, people can say also it's a compliment that they want to, to do this trick or whatever, but um, I think as far as Francis, he felt that um, what he did was him. Mm-hmm. And he, he thinks that every artist feels the same. What you do is you, and he, he had nothing to do with anyone else. It was his work, and he has to do it. So do you think, so think that would be the advice he would give to sort of the modern juggler is sort of find your path? Right. Well, to, you know, today with the Internet and everything, back then when they started, what we spoke about earlier, they had no teacher. There was no Internet. They couldn't go to YouTube yeah. and see an act and play it over and over and over, you know, and say, oh, I want to do this and that. You, you just you had to find your own thing and use your mind. And, you know, especially, I mean, they did sport in the beginning as a youngster with the diving and everything. But so they had to really develop their own, their own style. Now, was he, was he aware of, like, YouTube? Would he watch jugglers on YouTube? No. And, no. <laughs> <laughs> there was so much footage of him on there. He's like, how did that get on there? You know, where did I get this from? Now, he never came to an IJ festival. I know they wanted to honor him, and he, but he was not interested. No. You know, Francis, he liked individuality. He didn't like, like, big groups of people. He loved meeting jugglers and artists, but he really liked it one-on-one. -on -one, and he never, to teach, he never had that inclination at all but like if you would meet an artist and you would sit and talk with him you could just learn so much through the conversation 
about work, about life, and sometimes it's more important what you don't do than you do. I mean, you just... Yeah, there's that showbiz expression, the magic is in the eraser. Well, yeah, <laughs> I call it accumulation and elimination. I mean, we accumulate as we're young to learn what we can, and then you start to eliminate what really doesn't work, and you find yourself. Now, what do you think he would think about, like, juggling as a competition? Oh, no, he, he didn't. He didn't. No, no, he didn't agree with that at all. He felt that juggling was, was more than this. It was a feeling. It was an art. And he didn't believe in, in competition. And it put a lot of pressure on the artists because they all want to do good and be well. And it's at this moment, he didn't agree to that. So he never had competed in any kind of circus competitions okay. or no, never. anything like that? No, never. He competed with himself. And then at one point, he put together his own show, this incognito flamenco. Was, what, uh, was that sort of towards the end of his career that he had done that? Yes, actually at this point, well, Francis had wanted to put a little show together like in the 70s with some of his friends, Senor Wences, George Carl, people like this. And, wow. um, but yeah. at that point, he was just, they were all, but he was just too busy and the practice took too much time and it never happened. But after Francis stopped performing, he had time, he had more time. And he always had this love of flamenco. So when we were performing at the pre-Olympic, before the Olympic opened in Barcelona, we went to a tableau one night, a Spanish restaurant, and they had this show. And we saw this dancer that like blew us away. And Francis never forgot this. And later on in New York, a friend of Rafael's knew this dancer from Sevilla. His name was El Torombo. And so they made a connection. Francis called him. We ended up going to Sevilla. Francis spoke with him. They said, when you talk to the gypsies about doing a show with a juggler, a dancer, whatever, they're going to think you're nuts. But Francis and Turumbo, just even with a language barrier, because Francis, didn't, he could speak Spanish but not fluent, they connected on another level. And that's how he started Incognito Flamenco. And it was a mix of the gypsies singing, dancing, music, with some acts in between. There was a film of Francis because he wasn't performing at that point, but there was a film of him and Rafael played live. It was fantastic. And then Oleki Sosimov, equilibrist, Russian, fantastic, the best. And I was in the show and two tap dancers from St. Louis in New York, Vandeman Porter and Robert L. Reed, they did a whole number of conversation together with tap and flamenco. And this was the show. Everybody worked to the, the gypsies, the live music. And through, through the Tiger Palace, who uh, backed it and produced it, we did two shows in Frankfurt in 2001, was the first show then in 2002, or 2000, and then 2002 on Francis's 80th birthday. We did it the second time. The first time was at the opera, and the second time at the Jahrhunderthalle outside, the big arena outside of Frankfurt. And I think that's a pretty nice 80th birthday present. So what age was he when he retired from actively performing? I think he was like, like 74. Wow. Wow. <laughs> that's a long career, though. <laughs> yes, it is. Yes, it is. And would he ever, would he, would he like to reminisce? Would he like to go, like, look back at all the amazing shows and people? And... I mean, he had, you know, he had a lot of life and stories. But, you know, he wasn't one to dwell on it. He was always looking ahead. And speaking of looking ahead, I see that you are still actively working, that you were at the, the Crystal Palace in Germany in 2015. Yes. Are you still taking sort of long-term engagements, or what, what is sort of the, your present and future look like? Well, I mean, I, I moved back to Pennsylvania now, and um, no, I'm still working. I practice. In fact, after this, I'm going to go practice, and I can't wait. <laughs> well, thank you so much for taking some time out, though. I mean, uh... no, I'm I'm very happy. I was quite, as I told you, nervous to do this. I've never really done something like this, but you know, as I had spoken to you earlier, I'm I have donated material from Francis to the New York Public Library for the performing arts. So I'm really happy to do this, and just to, as far as Francis, that people can remember and learn and see his his work in his artistry well i'm i was talking to a young juggler the other day and we were sort of talking about modern juggling versus what i would consider sort of my take on juggling which maybe is more of an old-fashioned look so for me for someone not to know the name francis brunn like mm -hmm. if they if they love if they profess to love juggling if they profess mm -hmm. to be a juggler mm -hmm. yes 
and they don't know the name Francis Brunn, it immediately, for me, I just... Something's wrong. Something's wrong. <laughs> if you're a dancer, you don't know Nuriyev, Baryshnikov, or like... Exactly. Bob Fossey, these, yeah, these people yeah. that have, yeah, formed the field and have shown us all so much and given us so much. Well, if you think of the giants of our profession and the, the idea that we have, we do have this very rich history. Unfortunately, the, the general public is not aware of juggling as an art form, aware of juggling in its many different myriad expressions. But as jugglers ourselves, or people who consider ourselves jugglers, we really have to, I mean, have to is a strong term, but for me, to really appreciate juggling, you have to see someone like a Francis, who, like you said, right. yes. wasn't, ex wasn't exposed to all this material of jugglers like oh here I can I can learn this trick or this trick or mm -hmm. I can do this trick 10 times and make a video and show people mm -hmm. like when I was coming up you only saw professionals we were lucky to have one guy with a videotape a VHS copy of Chris Cremo and Dick mm -hmm. Franco and mm -hmm. Ernest Montego and of course Francis Brunn and Bobby May so we only saw professionals and this, the complete package of a professional juggler is to me epitomized by the life and career of Francis Brunt. Mm -hmm. So just to be a part of this conversation and to be part of spreading his legacy means a lot to me. You know, the great, great juggler, the legend Rastelli, Francis said, there will never be an, another Rastelli. There was only one Rastelli. Yes. You know, and even if somebody comes along that is different or whatever, it, there's only one Rastelli. Yeah, there, and there's like only one Anthony Gatto. There, there's only one Sergei Ignatov. Mm -hmm. And there's definitely only one Francis Brunn. Yes. So if, to leave us with sort of a, a last message or a last sort of feeling. Well, I was thinking about this. Yes, I, once again, I have to quote Francis. I would like to say this at the end. Like you said, for the jugglers or people coming today, whatever you do, if it's juggling or whatever it is, that, you know, you have to love what you do. And this is what Francis said. I have it written down here. There's no, there's no such thing as instant right away. You know, it's a lot of work. I mean, today with the TV and the internet, you can do something and it becomes a sensation overnight. But it takes work. It takes dedication to make a name and to hold a name through time. It takes years and years and years. And life is a never-ending practice. This is, you know, what I can say. Wow. Okay. That was very touching. I, I'm tearing up a little bit. <laughs> no. uh, that was beautiful. Well, I just want to say thank you so much for, for taking the time and for, for sharing your stories with, about Francis and about your own career. And I just want to say for all the listeners of the Drop Everything podcast, thank you so much, Natalie Enterline. Thank you, Dan. And I want to thank Mike for making this possible. Thank you, Michael Sherrick. <laughs> yeah, thank you, Michael Sherrick. And thank you once again, Natalie. It was a real oh. pleasure, a real pleasure talking with you. All right. You're welcome. You're very welcome. Thank you. I hope you enjoyed Drop Everything podcast number 27 with our great guest, Natalie Enterline. This is recorded live at the Holzman Recording Laboratories in Pinole, California. So come and visit sometime and I'll make you a sandwich. All right. Let's thank our sponsors, starting with the IJA, International Jugglers Association. Information about their juggling, the group, their festivals, their products, and so much more can be found at juggle.org. Also, let's thank me, Dan Holzman, by visiting my personal coaching website at braindrizzles.com. I offer coaching for variety artists in comedy, performance, and so much more. All right, that was our podcast. Don't forget, Francis Brunn! And drop everything except when you're juggling.